Okay, everybody should buckle up here mm-hmm. because we've got uh, we've got not one, not two, three guests. It's, it's like the best minutiae men celebrity interview Groupon that <laughs> we've is. ever had. You it get is. three of them, and I'll tell you who the three are. You may not know their names: Frankie Previtt, John D. Nicola, and Stacy Widelid. But you know their work. These guys are the guys that wrote the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which had three giant hits. Well, I think. Was it 20 million records or something? I think eight, 18 weeks at number one or something yeah. like that. They had uh, I've Had the Time of My Life. Everyone knows that song, that Bill Medley. Uh, mm-hmm. You never close with that Bill Medley. Hungry Eyes, mm-hmm. which was a hit for Eric yeah. Carmen. Yeah. Huge hit. And She's Like the Wind, which Patrick Swayze sang also. They wrote those songs. Right. Right. So that, that's what we've got. Right. It's pretty big. Pretty big. Pretty big. Academy Award winners. Mm. Uh, Men Celebrity Interview is up next, but first listen to this other fine Opie show. I'm Steve Baskerville. I'm Howard Sudbury. I'm going to show you my doodle. Can you see my doodle from where you no. are? You know who else would? Walter Jacobson would doodle. And his doodle one day was close to my doodle. <laughs> he, uh, so you've seen his doodle? Sure. Uh, he's seen your doodle. He's seen my doodle more than one day. Back to you with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. Back to you, an Opai show only on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast. An Opai show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Man Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. Uh, Dave, we're generally not accustomed to having Academy Award winners on the show, but uh, today that's going to change. These three guys are acclaimed songwriters. The people behind the music from the classic 1980s film, Dirty Dancing. The soundtrack, number one for 18 weeks. And we have the guys responsible for that great and memorable music. Please welcome to the show, Frankie Previtt, John DiNicola, and Stacy Widelitz. Big thrill for us, guys. Thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Uh, we'll get to the songs that you wrote for the movie in just a second. Everybody knows those songs, but I wanted to start with Stacy, if that's okay. Because, sure. Stacy, you were actually friends with Patrick Swayze uh, before, during, and after the making of this movie. So tell us a little bit about what he was like and how you got to know him. Uh, we got to know each other. Um, we met in his acting class uh, in 1983, I think it was. I was in the acting class to play piano for a friend of mine who was doing a scene. There were about 60 students in the class, including... Um, Alec Baldwin was in the class at that time and Tom Selleck and Reagan's daughter, Patty was in the class and Mimi Rogers. And so um, the scene went great. And, but then this guy came up to me and introduced himself as buddy, which is how friends and family knew Patrick. And uh, he said, hi, I'm buddy. I really like you playing and what you were talking about, you know, with theater and all this, cause it turned into a big discussion with the teacher and I looked at him and I said, you know, you look really familiar. And after some, you know, back and forth, this blonde woman came over and he said, this is my wife, Lisa. And I said, I got it. The two of you are always working on a black 240Z on La Jolla Avenue on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they looked at me and they said, how do you know that? And I said, I live right around the block from you. And I said, I live two houses away from you. 
And I was living with my then girlfriend, Wendy, Wendy Fraser, who sings on She's Like the Wind. And um, the four of us became friends and just started hanging out. And we talk about dance and theater and music. And um, and that's how it, the song came to be, because it was about a year later that he called me and said, I've had this idea for a song. They're looking for songs for the movie Grandview USA. Do you want to work on this with me? And I said, sure, come on over. So he came over that night with his guitar. And over the course of the next few days or so, we kind of hashed out um, the song. And he was he was a, a great guy, very, very musical. Uh, he was actually a pretty decent guitarist. He was in bands in high school. He was on uh, Broadway in, in the show Grease. Um, so he, you know, came to it naturally in terms of the, the music side of stuff. And um, but we became close friends um, throughout his life. And we ended up working on some other things together, most notably uh, a stage show that he and his wife and the third dancer did in Beverly Hills in the mid 80s that they later turned into a movie, which I did the score for. That was in the early 2000s. So uh, we had the opportunity to work together many times. And we also had houses not too far from each other in Lake Arrowhead. And we take our boats out on the lake. And, you know, this was the rough life part of it. So it was uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Now, did you share a dentist with him or something? Because I hear. Oh, you've heard that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He, he needed a new dentist. And I recommended my guy, uh, Dr. Roger Lewis, who was kind of a prankster. And, um, you know, the Beverly Hills dentist to the stars with the, the headshots in the examining room. And um, one time I was in for a cleaning or something and I'm in the chair with all the stuff in my mouth and there was an adjoining prep, uh, prep office and then another examining room on the other side of that. So while I'm in the chair, Roger swung the doors open and I look across and there's Buddy, there's Patrick Swayze <laughs> in, the, in the other dentist chair, also all loaded up. Recording so stopped. Uh oh. Recording stopped. Well, don't worry, because we, we're recording it on uh, another thing here. Dave Dave must oh, okay. have fallen off. But go ahead. I'm sorry. So um, I look across, and there he is with also all this stuff in his mouth. And we can't speak, but we start going. Go ahead. The weirdest thing, because the radio was on, and She's Like the Wind came on on the radio while we were sitting there. And so now we're both pointing at the ceiling because that's where the sound is coming oh, from. Oh, that's going, awesome. Now, that was a big hit. Was that like a number one hit? Or it was in the top five, I think, wasn't it? She's like the wind. She's like on the top, on the hot 100, it topped out at number three. Not bad. On adult contemporary. <laughs> it was number one on adult contemporary and also top 10 about 20 countries. Okay, uh, John and Frankie, I, I know that uh, you guys didn't know Patrick uh, like Stacy did. So how, how exactly did you get connected with this film? Um, I, I think that kind of came through me because I was uh, in a band called Frankie and the Knockouts back in the 80s that um, Jimmy Einer was the president of the label and he decided to close up shop. And so that left me without a record deal and I was working on trying to get a new record deal. And I ran into uh, a friend of mine who had a studio in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, and turned me on to a track 
that he loved a, a musical track that he said, you know, this is something you want to listen to because uh, I think it's something you might want to write something to. And I said, yeah, that's, that's a really nice piece of music. And I said, who, who wrote the music? And he said, John D. Nicola. And I said, well, I'd like to you know, speak to John. And so John uh, and I spoke and he said, go ahead, you know, give it a whirl. And that very first piece of music that I heard that I wrote to was uh, turned out to be Hungry Eyes. And so that was a great start for John and I. And as we continued to write, I received this phone call from Jimmy Einer, who had shut down his label and started working as a musical director for Vestron Films. And he called and said, I have this little film I want you to write a, a song for. And I said, Jimmy, man, I'm really busy. I'm trying to get another deal. You shut your label. I don't have time. So Jimmy's like, make time. This is going to change your life. And I'm thinking, well, you did that two years ago <laughs> when you shut your label down. So uh, he goes, no, I got a good feeling. I got a good feeling about this. And I said, so what's the name of the movie? And uh, he, he goes on to tell me that it's called Dirty Dancing. And so my hand went to my forehead and I thought, <laughs> Jimmy's doing porn. You know, he's, you know, he's doing a porn. That's a whole flick. different kind of music. You get a little more bass uh, when you're writing <laughs> for that. <laughs> exactly. So um, I said, okay, well, you know, I'll give it a whirl. So the first person I thought to uh, write something with for this was John D. Nicola because we were we were on a hot streak of writing some really really good music together. And um, so when I when I spoke to John, uh, you want to tell it from here, John, because this goes on for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we were, uh, as Frankie said, writing for Frankie in the Knockouts and probably pumped out about eight or nine songs, maybe maybe less. And uh, Frankie got this call. And um, as soon as I heard, they gave us some examples of what they uh, the songs should be sort of sounding like. So I was working with a guy named Don Markowitz at the time also. And Donnie had already purchased some drum machines uh, well, a drum machine, <clears throat> a DMX, uh, Oberheim DMX, and, and which was probably the only one on the market at that time. This is early into that stuff. It wasn't even what, what they call MIDI. It wasn't even MIDI yet. So <clears throat> being that it was a dance track, I thought, well, I'll probably need a drum machine. And uh, also Donnie had an 8-track recorder, so... Uh, I went over to his place and we sat down and just kind of pumped out, uh, you know, a track um, with the feel uh, that they they gave us. Uh, they referenced two songs. One was uh, a Blues Brothers song, which I, I still can't remember the name of that one, which I didn't understand how that would relate. And the other one was uh, Irene Cara's uh, What a Feeling. So that was to start slow and uh, sort of go into a dance beat. And uh, I'm not sure, Frank, did they give us the beats per minute yet? Or uh, I, I, we just thought it was dance. Recording right? in progress. <clears throat> I, I can't um, remember whether they... Uh, yeah, whether I don't they, think they gave us BPMs, which right. are people that don't know what that means. It's beats per minute, right. uh, you know, tempo-wise for the song. I don't think so, John. No, it was I just, just think dance, uh, right. they needed it to be seven minutes long right. because that was the last scene. So we had right. to write a, a MacArthur Park kind of song. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, give me Hey Jude, would you? 
And I guess we uh, struck something that, uh, you know, struck a nerve w- w- with the cast and the and uh, Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote it, and uh, Emil Ardolino, who directed it. And uh, uh, should we go into that whole story? The, you know, the, uh, good, Frank, take the tape, uh, the tape deal. The tape deal. What do you mean by the tape deal, John? Well, the 150th cassette. Oh, that, that, yeah. You know, they... They had listened to when I when I met uh, Patrick Swayze at the Academy Awards. He was telling me about that they had listened to 149 cassettes up to that day, and they were filming out a sequence, and so they were going to film um, "Time of My Life" that day, and they didn't really have a song, and so there I think they were going to do it to a Lionel Richie track, and um, so. The last cassette came in, and I think. Uh, Wait a minute, you're talking. You're, I'm sorry to interrupt. You're talking about the dancing scene. The, yes, the last. And they were going to do it to a different song completely, and then they were going to do it to a Lionel. Well, well, one that was a temp. They, they, it wasn't right. written for the movie. It was just a temp, but they were using. It, but they they ran out of. They were running out of time okay. to get the I original see. song that okay. they wanted. Gotcha. All right. I'm so sorry. Patrick had said to me they they were not really into the movie because they didn't have an original song and they were kind of bummed out. And they just wanted to get it over with. And then the director walked in with this last cassette and was like, I have this uh, one last cassette. We might as well listen to it. We listened to 149 other ones. So they put it on. And as soon as they put Time of My Life on, and I was singing with, with Rochelle Capelli, who's a really, really good session singer. And they kind of started looking at each other and they were, is this song great or are we this desperate? You know, (laughs) it's great, by the way, (laughs) that was the answer. You know, and I didn't even realize this until I was researching about uh, for this interview that they actually then danced to your version of that song, right? To the the demo version with you singing it. Now, I've heard you sing. uh, Listen to the Frankie and the Knockouts. You have a very high voice, and then Correct. Bill Medley from uh, the Righteous Re- Brothers. Recording in progress. Bill Medley from the Righteous Brothers sings it, and he's down here. Uh, how did that work exactly? How did you manage to make that? Uh, just change the key, basically. No, we stayed in the same key, and, and Bill was kind of upset because when he heard my tenor voice, he was like, "How am I supposed to hit those notes? I can't <laughs> sing this song." And so the song's in the key E. And so they said, just lower it an octave. So I've heard the time of my life. Oh, okay. I'll sing it down there. And it became, you know, kind of what Bill Medley does, that that baritone voice that we all remember from the Righteous Brothers. And uh, it, it fit like a glove. And I, th- I also think that Diane... Um, I mean, Jennifer... Jennifer Warren, excuse me, I'm thinking yeah. Diane Warren. Jennifer Warren, who sang the female version, Bill had wanted to sing with her for a while. So it was the matchup was really good with their voices. She was also on another Academy Award winning song. I think it was with Joe Cocker. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Up, up where we belong. Yeah. Yeah. From, uh... Top Gun, wasn't she it? She had yeah. like a little magical touch with winning Academy Awards. Yeah. So it was Officer and a Gentleman. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Wow. So, I mean, that's, I, you know, and I heard that you have released those original demos 
Is that true? And that that uh, the the proceeds are going to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Is that still happening? Yeah, that's still happening. You can go to Facebook and just go Dirty Dancing Demos. And um, it was an idea that we came up with and, you know, John, I and Donnie, and we decided it was time to give back and make it in memory of Patrick. So I made a cold call to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And, you know, by the luck of this, you know, stars, um, the lady Pamela Acosta, who started the whole charity, uh, answered the phone and I told her what we wanted to do. She was very excited and We've raised probably in the past 20 years, I would say 25 plus thousand dollars selling those demos, a piece of history of people who can listen to the actual demos that the baby and Johnny dance to Patrick and Jennifer. And actually, when Patrick is lip syncing recording recording in progress. Sorry. So when Patrick, that's okay. When Patrick is singing in the breakdown, he's he's lip syncing. The breakdown, he's actually lip syncing to me as opposed to Bill. So that's kind of a, you know, an honor for me to know that, you know, Patrick and Bill are two unbelievable, iconic figures that were put their fingerprints on our song. Go ahead. They had a bit of a... um, Eleanor and uh, Patrick and Emil and everybody involved kind of had a demo lock. And, and so it was hard for them to get over our demo and move on to what ended up, you know, being the final version. Uh, Jimmy kind of had to talk them into it a little bit. But uh, I, I would say it took me a half a minute, too. I mean, it was hard to, you know, uh, in retrospect, it's perfect, you know. The, the lower voice kind of, you know, as Patrick and the, the female voice as as the Jennifers. And uh, but, uh, but also, the, also, John, the thread of uh, the Righteous Brothers being from the 60s. Right. The to, time a period. to a contemporary period. He was the thread right. that that made it like viable. Right. That you could accept that, you know, in 1964, that this pop song would have been popular. 63. Um, (laughs) Sorry. And and, and, uh, Michael Lloyd kind of went, you know, went in that uh, Righteous Brothers direction and even to go so far that one of the only other instrumental pieces that are in the final that we didn't sort of lay out for them would be the Gene Page. Gene Page did the string arrangement, and it's that da 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 da, and that is directly lifted from a Righteous Brothers tune to sort of you know make it uh, you know make it uh, make sense. Uh, we uh, our demo was a synth bass, and as I stated earlier, an electronic drum machine. Um, Michael, uh, you know, had real drums and real bass guitar. Mike, Again, Michael, Lloyd, he's talking Michael, about Michael Lloyd, the producer of right, the track. Right. Also, also they, they they filmed um, "To Hungry Eyes," the demo of "Hungry Eyes." Well, so let, that, let's talk about that song because that that was a big hit for Eric Carmen. But I know that uh, you thought you were going to have your voice on that uh, until very late in the process. Isn't that true, Frank? Yeah, Jimmy had asked me to, because um, they, they really loved, you know, have the uh, the two demos and said, would you consider singing Hungry Eyes? I said, absolutely. So um, I had 
you know, put together at the power station, you know, a session that was going to start on Monday. And then Emil called us in to look at another scene and said, uh, you know, what are the BPMs, the beats per minute for Hungry Eyes? Because they're having a hard time linking it to the demo. And I'm like, what do you mean? We're we're recording it on Monday. And he goes, oh, you didn't hear Bob Summers just signed Eric Carmen. (laughs) Uh, to RCA and Hello. Thinks, by the way, it's a hit record. So you're out and Eric's in and I hate to be, you know, kill the messenger. But, you know, what What can I tell you? And I said, well, it would have been nice to tell me like a, before I booked the time and got all these players together. But, you did know, you at least bring bagels or something. <laughs> did, you, did you get something? No, I just made sure they knew what my address was, you know, so they could, you know. Send the, the check to the right place. <laughs> so you know, Stacy, I wanted to ask you about something that I that I saw too that not related to the to the movie at all. But uh, I read that you wrote the original theme song to Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, co- co-wrote it with um, Jeff Skunk Baxter, whom I just saw here in Nashville last oh, week. Oh, from he the was- Doobies, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, we've been friends for. We were introduced in 1988 by my agent to work together and we became fast friends and um, worked on a couple of TV shows besides 90210. But um, we were approached about that. And I think it got to Jeff because the producers were originally saying they wanted something a little offbeat, maybe a little Steely Danish because Jeff was from Steely Dan as well. And um, so we came up with this theme that everybody seemed to like and we booked the the session. We wanted to use saxophone on it. So I said, yeah, I know a couple of good sax players. And Jeff said, oh, we'll get Edgar. So he called Edgar Winter and Edgar, Edgar Winter. Edgar Winter, wow, cool. Yeah. So he played sax on it. And the show premiered the pilot with our theme. And uh, then, as happens in television, everything went to pot because Aaron Spelling, who was the producer of the show, hated the visuals in the opening and scrapped the entire opening, including the producers that put the opening together. They got fired and everything was scrapped, including our theme. But on YouTube, you can still go to that original um, episode and hear our theme on it, which I still think was a lot better and just a little less trite than the the theme Mm. they ultimately used. But, you know, as a uh, consolation, uh, once that happened, one of the producers brought me on to score a bunch of the episodes because my main business in L.A. was not songwriting. Recording stopped. It was recording in progress. Stop doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. By the way, I'm sitting at my piano because it's actually the best spot for Zoom meetings. Well, I so, don't. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, it was. Um, uh, so they let me. You know, I scored a bunch of the episodes, and that was that was fine. Although spelling is not a great organization to work for, I will say that. Yeah. But um, but anyway, but it was uh, Baxter and I. We also worked on. Um, a show called TV 101, scoring the episodes, and then a, a detective show called South of Sunset, starring Glenn Fry of the Eagles. Oh wow! And oh. That, that show was a disaster. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, sounded good. Yeah, uh, but you know, 
Baxter and I, you know, like I said, we've remained friends all these years. And one of my favorite things that I ever did was I got to play with him in a band about um, five times at the China Club in L.A., behind a singer named Terry Garrison. And that was an absolute blast. We'd <laughs> smoke cigars on stage and drink scotch and, wow. and play, and it was so much fun. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so, uh, John, I have a question for you also, because uh, um, there's a story that you were instrumental in discovering a little-known outfit called Maroon 5. Because um, I saw Adam Levine gave you credit on The Voice. So is this a true story? Are you the man? <laughs> Uh, well, yes, I, I was working with a guy named Tommy Allen. We were at a, a production company and uh, Tommy um, was living in Malibu and I was in New York and, and he was walking with his wife at the time on the beach in Malibu and he overheard this music. Tommy has a keen ear for um, kind of that raspberries, uh, you know, kind of uh Beach boyish pop and and uh, you know he just went walked into this they were they were just playing in a garage and uh, said listen we'd love to take you into the studio and uh, they were actually called Kara's Flowers um, the original four guys uh, um, for um, Maroon Five actually they, the, they added the fifth but the four of those five Maroon Fivers are the guys that we we worked with and signed uh, and did a record with um, and um, you know you could see uh, we could tell immediately they were all talented but you could see that Adam was just uh, yeah. just incredible talent of course th their stuff was a little more rock based then uh, and then when they, they broke up for a short while two of them came to the New York area and studied out in Long Island at um I can't think of the name. Five Towns College, and uh, they were sort of introduced into the, you know, the uh, more R and B side of music uh, than they were getting over there, and it, it influenced them enough. And when they reformed, they had that. They still had the guitar. They were early. They were still guitar based, but you, as you know, you hear the, that music had a little bit of a Stevie Wonder vibe to it, or whatever you want to call it, for that first record. That was Maroon Five, but but yeah, we 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 worked with them for God. We did that album uh, probably it was eight or nine months, I guess. You know, we in the studio. We did we did it uh, up. You know, uh, without a, a label. Actually, we did it. You know, uh, on spec basically. And of course, uh, uh, they got picked up by Warner Brothers. And not to date ourselves, yeah. but Rick and I were pretty excited that we're talking to the lead singer of Frankie and the Knockouts. And, uh, you know, Rick and I were 80s DJs, you know, 22 minutes after six o'clock. Here's Sweetheart, you know, so tell us a little bit about that. You know, I was um, in a lot of different bands through, through my career. Uh, Bull Angus back in the, in the 70s, which was on Mercury Records. And then we toured with like Rod Stewart and Deep Purple and Fleetwood Mac. And then uh, uh, I decided that I was going to, um, you know, kind of change my direction from that band it was a heavy band. And I came home and started taking voice lessons and got signed by Buddha Records as an R&B singer. And Tony Camillo produced me, um, who Midnight Train to Georgia, a lot, a lot of really great R&B stuff. 
And uh, but I just wasn't feeling the energy from the, you know, like I did when I performed in my rock and roll bands. And so I decided that I was going to take the two genres and kind of combine them and have like a blue eyed soul rock and roll band. So I took the guitar player from Bull Angus and we, uh, Billy Elworthy and myself, and we decided that we were going to do Frankie and the Knockouts. And there was just like the two of us. And so I was still selling cars out of my driveway to, to raise enough money to take my voice lessons and pay my bills. And then I met this guy named Bert Padell, who was the accountant for the stars. So he did in two in two weeks what I couldn't do in two years. He started sending my my uh, tapes around. And Jimmy Einer, president of Millennium Records, is that Jimmy Einer guy again. And he just said, uh, you know, you got a band? I said, yeah, I got a band. Me and Billy, yeah, I got a band. And he goes, well, if you can write a few more songs that are as good as these three or four, I'll give you a record deal. So I went back. I told Billy and uh, Billy said, you know, let's let's pull Blake Levinson and this keyboard player that we work with. And so we wrote a bunch of more songs and we got the record deal. And right before we're going into the studio, I just grabbed a bunch of guys that I do my demos with to do the record. And I brought Sweetheart into Jimmy. And he goes, you know what? It's, it's a really good song, but it's a really pop song. And you want to be a rock and roll band? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you sure you want to put that bullet in the gun? <laughs> and I said, well, let's put it in the gun and we'll deal with it later. And so basically, Sweetheart went top 10, Billboard. And uh, he was right. Radio thought of us as a pop band. And when we would play out, we would play all this other music. And then all of a sudden we play Sweetheart and the audience. Oh, that's who they are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Hold that thought. We have to take a break. Minutia Men Celebrity Interview will be right back. All right, Adam, what uh, country are you from? I am from England. What is the best soccer league in the entire world? The English Premier League. What is your day job? Director of Coaching for Illinois Youth Soccer. So if you were, say, a fan of English Premier League and you wanted to hear the, the opinions of someone who is from England, who knows a lot of soccer, what podcast would you tell people they need to listen to free kicks with adam and rick and that's on the radio misfits podcast network free kicks a tony lasano podcast opi show on the radio misfits podcast network great talk radio isn't dead it just moved to a better place radio misfits.com now back to our guest on minutia men celebrity interview you know this is this has been uh, such a, a thrill for us to have you guys on the show uh, if if people want to follow your careers, why don't we go down the line? If if there's uh, you know like social media you'd like to give out where people can find you, websites, etc. Maybe start with Stacy. Yeah, I have a couple of ways. I have a, a website that uh, put up last year. It's simple. It's StacyWidelitz.com, and um, you can follow not just it's stories about the music but also i have a whole new thing happening as a um fine art white street photographer and so you can uh view my um the photos that i have and follow what i'm doing and i have gallery representation now and and then on instagram it's uh just at you know the uh, at stacy widelitz 
And I also there mainly use that for the for the photography. Uh, but um, those are the main ways, and you know, always on Facebook as as well. So uh, those are the main ways you can kind of keep track of what I'm doing. Okay, John. Yeah, well, uh, I actually just finished up my second uh, solo record. Uh, I did one uh, last year, uh, twenty yeah, twenty nineteen, uh, called the Why Because of uh, kind of songs I had written with Frankie or uh, other people for other people and uh we did well uh hungry eyes made it on the uh chart uh ac chart to number 22 and um and then uh, i'm finishing uh, uh, i just finished a, a new record and uh you can follow my stuff um at either omad that's omadrecords.com or johndnicola.com or johndnicola music is ig and and also Facebook. Okay. And I know, Frankie, you don't uh, really have a website, and you're not on social media, so let me give one more plug to the album. Because when Patrick Swayze passed away, Frankie and John contacted Swayze's wife, Lisa, and decided to donate proceeds from the sale of Dirty Dancing, the original demos, to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network in memory of Patrick, which is fantastic. Dirty Dancing, the original demos, features the original recordings uh, with Frankie on lead vocals of I've Had the Time of My Life and Hungry Eyes. Thanks again to all three of you for being on the show. Thanks for all the great music you've given us all these years. And special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasana with opishows.com. Opie is hippo backwards. O-P-P-I-H shows.com. We're distributed by Ed Silla with Radio Misfits. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. And we'll be back again soon with another edition of Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. The proceeding was a presentation of Opie Productions. Find our other shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opie Productions. Tony, can you shut up? So, Lou, what's the deal with horsepower? I mean, we don't use horses anymore. Well, we like horses, and that's how it started, so these are our new ponies. At least we're living in the golden age of horsepower and doing our best to enjoy it like we do on the Car Guys Report and Formed Automotive. I'm Mark Vernon. I'm Lou Costable. Join us for the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. You really think you can feed like 700 horses, Mark? Mark.